0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.
1: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Everyone, happy spring! Welcome to the second episode of season two of Thesis on Joan.
3: I'm Holly They Them, and I'm Megan hurt And Thesis on Joan is a podcast dedicated to amplifying voices from the LGBTQ plus community in the New York performing arts scene and examining the industry from a queer perspective. Join fan queers and theater professionals Megan and I as we sit down with groundbreaking theater folk from Brooklyn Cabaret performers to people backstage and on Broadway.
2: For many queers, theater has been an escape. This podcast looks to have open conversations on where we've come from and where we're headed as a community while clearing the canon along the way.
3: Hey Holly, Hi. how is it going? You know, it's exciting that, uh, we're in at the end of March when we're recording this and folks are starting to talk more about theater reopening and, and planning for that. Um, so yeah, I wanted to check in with you and ask, you know, what was the last show you saw in person? Uh, and then what you are excited about to, to see once theater starts to reopen. Oh
2: boy. I know it's so exciting to actually like have this conversation now (laughs) and and feel like that there is a a potential for this in the future. Mm -hmm. Unlike a year ago, this was too sad to talk about. So the last show I saw was actually the show I was working on at the time. Girl from the North country had its opening night the Thursday. So one week exactly before the shutdown. Oh, wow. And like, thank God that party was not a super spreader event. (laughs) Cause like, you know, it's a, Traditional Broadway opening night party. It was just like buffet food tables and like three floors of people hugging and kissing and congratulating. Wow. It's a beautiful show though. I, I was very excited a few days afterwards because we recorded the cast album. So the cast album did happen. I witnessed it. It, <laughs> it, it exists, but it hasn't been put out yet because there's no show to go along with it. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a, Kind of a really uh going out with a bang with, <laughs> with that performance.
3: Yeah. What was the last thing you saw? Um, The last thing I saw was Cambodian Rock Band at Signature Theater. And that was my second time seeing it. The first time I went was with um, Sulu, one of our previous guests and my coworker, And we went on the first AAPI night. And that was just incredible. And it was like a huge rock concert. And I loved the place so much. Uh, and then I immediately bought tickets to go back again with uh, my partner and my best friend. So yeah, that was the last night that I saw. It was like the Saturday before theater shut down. And yeah, also an amazing way to go out. I love that show so much.
2: Do you remember people talking about it at the... I remember we like, not joked, but like we mentioned it a couple of times at Girl from the North Country, like how many people were there and how close we are, but... Not like with any real fear.
3: Yeah. You know? It's funny because we, the show I saw before that was The Fray with you. And I remember us talking about it, especially because oh, that yeah. show has a ball pit. <laughs> we were next
2: to a ball pit.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, we're not going in there. Um, Which I, I, you know, I, I affirm our decision. Um, oh yeah. But I remember definitely talking about it then, but I don't remember us talking about it at Cambodian Rock Band, maybe because we were just excited to be there. I don't know. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And what's, what's the show you're most excited to see when you come back?
3: Okay. The show that I'm most excited about to see just released a video trailer saying they would be coming back. So that would be company uh, with Katrina Lenk and Patty Lapone. I had tickets for it and before the shutdown and I'm so excited that they're actually coming back. What about you?
2: I am most excited to see six mm. and. Actually, just me being the nerdy theater advertiser I am, I saw a commercial for six on CBS Sunday morning, which is why I started watching CBS Sunday morning years (laughs) ago for theater commercials. And I like audibly just like screamed. (laughs) Because I just—it's been over a year since I've seen theater advertising on TV, which is so stupid. Aww. I know, but it was like, oh, this is a sign of hope. You know, what you, you wouldn't be spending the money on a TV placement if you weren't confident that soon you would be able to bring people back to the theater.
3: Jumping over to the show we saw was Circle Homafroditos by Shulee Cook, and directed by Ludovica Willerhauser, Uh, and it was a Parody Productions 2019 Parody Commission winner. So this takes place in 1895, New York. A trans man, Ambrose Carlton, finds a rare opportunity to beat the restrictive gendered system around him when he meets Loreline Reeves, founder of an underground social club for trans femmes known as Circle Homaphroditos. Ambrose hopes to find a lady at the club he can legally marry, then play the roles expected of them in public while pursuing the life they want in private. And this is based on true historical events. The show gave me some new terminology that I didn't, I wasn't familiar with. Yes, I was also struck by this too. <laughs> uh, the terms gynander and androgenine. I meant to look up what the history of those terms too, but I was like, oh, what's that? <laughs>
2: yeah, I was, um, so I was like Googling these and Gynander is, was often used for a masculine woman. I've never heard that term yeah, before. So it must've just got like totally buried it, over the last hundred years. And it, it was interesting too, cause there was like a scene with, uh, Loreline and saying like Angenine was her preferred, uh, term to be mm. addressed as. So I'm curious about like, was that a word that was for the community? As opposed to there's a scene where she lists some other things that they've been called that are not her preferred terms. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, you know, just in our lifetime, I feel like the words that we use have changed so much. So it would be curious to, I would love to hear like what the author, what the playwright was actually able to like uncover from history
3: about that. Mm-hmm. It felt to me like, oh, there's so much about queer history that I still don't know. And <laughs> finding those gems is really exciting.
2: Yeah. And I'm not usually like a period drama person, but like I was very much here for this (laughs) because it's like this wonderful story of chosen family, but it's set 150 years ago or almost 150 years ago. And I liked that through line a lot, seeing a lot of the conversations they were having and about the community they were forming. Very different language, but not dissimilar to the ways we talk about our chosen families today. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I love a period piece, especially a queer period piece. Um, I think it's unfortunate <laughs> that most of them center around white, skinny, femme women for the most part, especially in movies. So this kind of, this felt like a, um, a detour from that, which was really refreshing. And it, and I didn't feel like it was about coming out, like folks felt a lot more assured in their identity and who they were. Um, and it was just them, like, navigating the current environment and, and subverting it, right? Like this is what Ambrose was doing um, by trying to find a trans femme person and then they could both like drag in real life. Right. Yeah. And I appreciated that, you know, when the characters are first introduced, they're all uh the stage directions say they're in drag as they're out in public and then they become their real selves once they're in uh in their community and safe.
2: Yeah, I think that was a unique special thing getting to hear the stage directions because you got to hear like their pronouns being used consistently throughout the entire piece, which was um even when that didn't match what you were seeing on stage. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you make a good point there. I, I liked that when we meet Ambrose in this journey, Ambrose is already like very confident about like who he is. It's just like this detail that he's trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Whereas it, this play could have easily been about like someone who was trying to come to terms with their identity yeah. um and it was much bigger
3: than that mhm yeah it felt like a shakespearean piece in the ter- in terms of like mixing up gender identity and confusion and, right. <laughs> and um who's going to marry who and that was fun for me and in a way that was more accessible than a lot of shakespearean shows are <laughs> i liked that it
2: was very from the outside looking in, like a very conventional of the time story, mm-hmm. like a young man is looking for a wife <laughs> that like can be a, a true like love match to who he can be himself with. But it's through like all these different queer lenses, like you're saying with the Shakespeare, like um switching and identities. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it didn't like really break the trope of like what a story would have been at the the time Mm -hmm. i guess is what
3: i thought was interesting and but i appreciated that they had a little modern sensibility in terms of like the romance like the two characters that end up at the end they're like oh we've only known each other for a a couple weeks i think but we're gonna get married and we're really into (laughs) each other right now but like i think one of them says like oh i know this isn't love or it's probably not love but It seems like we've had a fight. We've been able to talk our way through it. It seems like we have the tools to be able to work through whatever comes. And and yeah, I think we should give it a try, which was refreshing.
2: Yeah. No, completely. Yeah. It wasn't just full like head over heels, like magical moment, like smitten thing. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was texting you, Holly, about (laughs) the brother. Cause I was like, why is this dude in this place so much? (laughs) And you were like, because Lorelai needs happiness too. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> I, I agree with that. It's not that he was a, um, I didn't like, dislike his character. And I thought the, some of the moments that he had, this is Ambrose's brother, some of the moments he had with Ambrose and like affirming Ambrose, I thought were actually really sweet and kind of refreshing to see.
3: But I was also like, this is just a lot of this dude. <laughs> 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 yeah, but I love Loreline's Laura- Laura character, and the actor Stevie Love I thought was a-, it was a really great performance. So I was happy to see her, Loreline, find some kind of happiness. Yeah. Yeah, even if it was with someone who maybe not has – we were so excited about to see.
2: <laughs> I will watch Stevie Love in anything, anytime. They're incredible. I, like, couldn't stop looking at them the entire – I mean, they're on the screen the entire time. But there's just <laughs> – Something about their performance was just like so amazing. Mm-hmm. Agreed.
3: Yeah. And shout out to our past guest, Ian was in this and so, I thought so perfectly cast.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Such a fun character. Yeah.
3: I loved seeing them in this role. And I, and you know, more people of color and period pieces also. It doesn't have to always be white folks. You know, we can use our imagination beyond that and that's fine. I also wanted to shout out the argument that Ambrose and Plum have about gender norms and like Ambrose kind of falling into this like toxic masculinity role of like, I will be, you know, behind the curtain, I will be the man and Plum being like, oh no, we don't have to, you know, we're already fucking with our (laughs) identity and our sexuality. So like, why would we also adhere to these norms?
2: Yeah, that was, that was awesome too. I did really like the line that Loreline had when um, the brother was saying like, oh, I'm sorry people have treated you this way. I'm sorry. This is what your life is like. And she says, you don't have to be sorry. You just have to be the exception. And I was like, oh, that's like a good just like thing to live by. Like don't dwell so much in, in many of the things that we face. Like don't just apologize. Like start to live and be the exception. Mm-hmm. I was like, that was a good, good line. Yeah. This was a developmental reading. Mm -hmm. So, very excited to see the next installment of this one day.
3: And so a new section of the podcast we're introducing this episode, we're calling Action of the Up, uh, where Megan and I are going to shout out uh, actions or movements that you can follow to help further the LGBTQ plus community, which, uh, you know, intersects with many other different communities. So this week, in light of the recent shooting in Atlanta, we wanted to uplift Red Canary Song. They're the only grassroots Chinese massage parlor worker coalition in the US. And right now they're uh, taking donations to support the victims' families and survivors and making sure those funds go directly to them. They also issued a statement recently about the shooting and rejecting the call for increased police in response to the tragedy. We'll we'll link it in the show notes. You can learn more about them, uh, the work they're doing, donate, follow, and amplify their voice as well.
0: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
3: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Now we
2: are so excited to bring you a conversation that's very different from those that we've had in the past with the incredible theater critic, Jose Solis.
3: And just a note that Jose references Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the interview, and we recorded it right after she shared her experience at the Capitol and her history of trauma as well. Um, So just some context for that. And more about Jose, he began his career as a critic at the age of 16 when he launched a film review website while living in Honduras, where he was born. He began writing about theater while attending college in Costa Rica and upon moving to New York City in 2012, focused entirely on the stage. His work appears in the New York Times, American Theater, TDF Stages, Backstage, Three Views, and America Magazine. In 2020, he was selected as the Flory Lasky Visiting Artist at Hunter College, where he will host the Wed at One series and started the BIPOC Critics Lab, a workshop he created meant to train the cultural critics of the future. The second installment of the lab was hosted by the Kennedy Center. He is also the creator and host of Token Theater Friends, a weekly web series and podcast where he talks to some of the most influential theater artists working today.
2: So, Jose, we're so excited you're here with us today. Um, To start, Jose, we just asked our guests to share their name, pronouns, and anything else they'd like to share about how they identify.
4: Thank you both for having me. I'm very excited to be here. My name is Jose Solis, and my pronouns are he, him, his.
2: And is there anything else you'd like to share about how you identify?
4: I love tacos. So basically my Twitter bio, like taco fiend, dog lover, like dog person, like, I mean, I need to see all the dogs and, um, shooty garland lover and just like regular human being, I guess.
3: Amazing. Uh, and you've written on so many different art forms from theater, film, literature, TV and music. And do you have different approaches on how you uh, approach each of those?
4: Let me tell you about the six months that I pretended that I was a sports writer. Oh my God. <laughs> and I actually got paid to write about, um, I don't even know what it's called. Like, you know, like I didn't know that people place like wagers and bets on like baseball odds and stuff. So when I was in Costa Rica, uh, I lived in Costa Rica through, uh, 2012 basically before moving to New York. And I was in Costa Rica and someone hired me, like they hired me to write daily about like baseball, like wagers and baseball news and sports news. And it was around the time that the 2010 uh soccer um World Cup was happening. And basically all I did all day long was like try to understand what ESPN was about. <laughs> and then like paraphrase... <laughs> Everything that I was reading, it was like, can you imagine sports numbers? It's like my nemesis. It's like uh, my my bullies. Had to be was, so I, much work. <laughs> it was yeah, and my boss would be like, "You're such a natural for this, man," because he was an American, and I I don't know. So that's a long way to say I don't really have a different approach to anything that I do. I just immerse myself completely into everything. Um, if it's the first time that I'm writing about something, there's also, uh, the fact, you know, that I don't, as endearing as it can be to have a writer say, oh, I'm no good at this, or I suck at this, or I'm new at this. It gets old. If you're trying out different things all the time, you know, I can't be like, oh, this is my first time writing about opera. Oh, this is my first time writing about ballet. So... I don't pretend that I know everything about it, but I don't start off as like, Hey, I'm an amateur, you know, like that Simpsons episode where like Homer was the new guy and I don't like, yeah, I don't, It would get old very soon. So I immerse myself as much as I can in every every subject and genre or whatever it is. And then I am a researcher by nature So no, I just do my research and I just like swallow and absorb and take in as much as I can from what I'm about to pursue and I go for it.
2: That sounds exhausting and awesome at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) The sports especially, like I can't imagine having to learn that much about something in order to write about
4: it. So that's
2: super impressive.
4: The wonderful thing is that I also have this like on and off button in my memory where I can like turn off I don't remember anything about sports now. (laughs) I did it for six months, but if I go back to ESPN, it's all going to be new again, because I, you know, removed all of that from my memory. So
2: made way for more important stuff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So our next question is thinking outside of white supremacist structures and standards, what do you think it takes to be an authority or a relevant voice on a form?
4: Okay, let me have a sip of my bourbon first.
2: (laughs) This question needs
4: permission. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm only half kidding when I say that I need it. Well, I mean, you saw me take it right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: One of the things that I have realized is that the thing about an authority is that most of these people who claim to be authorities, and some of the people who we assume are also are authorities, they have nothing really to back it up. So, one of the things, even that I tell. Uh, I've been talking to a lot of, like, literal children, you know, like, ages from, like, 10 to, like, 16, who are interested in criticism. One of the things I always tell them is, you, by default, just from being a human being who's alive at this moment in time, unless we're having, like, a seance or something like that, (laughs) but, you know, like, you as a human being are an authority in being a human being. So, I don't even, like, fuck with, like, the white aspect part of that, which is like mostly related to academia and a lot of things that involve gatekeeping and money and uh, things that are reserved for like certain elites, like which so many people by default are excluded from. So how can we be authorities on things that we're not even allowed to be a part of? So what I tell people, especially very, very young writers, is that you are an authority already. Like your experience as a person, you're the only one having it. So even if it's just that, and I'm like doing like air quotes, cause like just, it's not just, it's, uh, and I promise that I've only had like that sip of bourbon so far. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's, our lives are worth something. So just by the fact that you're alive and that you want to write or that you want to communicate anything about your life, you're an authority in your life already. Everything else comes with time, with uh, education, and I don't mean academic preparation for that. Like I just said, like I just will research ESPN for a few weeks and then write about sports. <laughs> it's really up to up to each of us and what we. Um, because it's a struggle also, like, you know, like, it's, it's not like, oh, you can like be whoever you want, be whatever you want. Technically you can, but also technically you can't because all this white supremacist structures are keeping us from doing it. But you can, you know, even if it's like in your journal, like at home on Twitter or whatever, you can write about whatever the hell you want and you are an authority and no film bro and no Christopher Nolan expert and no professor, and no white like cis male like douchebag can come tell you that you cannot and that you're not an authority on something that you know because you've lived it.
3: Yeah, that completely, you know, takes away the the need for imposter syndrome, right? Like no one can be an imposter because we're all we all have experience. Oh, so that translates greatly into our next question about. Uh, you're the founder and director of the Bipoc Theater Critics Lab. Can you tell us about that program and its genesis? It's doing really amazing work right now.
4: Thank you so much for that. Uh, only thing is that I will remove theater from that because it's just Bipoc Critics Lab. Because one of the things that I also make sure is that I mean, we're freelancers. We're journalists. We know. That if we only knew how to do one thing, we would starve even more than we are starving with this freelance rates, right? So um, I, although I started this mostly based on my experiences around theater, which is like extremely white and extremely, uh, you know, not inclusive, uh, once I was able to take my workshop to the Kennedy Center. I feel like I'm just like jumping ahead of myself. So you told Fair me to, like, okay. Uh Okay, so basically what happened was this. like I was, for the longest time, and I mean like years and years and years, at least since 2014, when I started being let in into all this like, theater groups and like critics groups and all of that, um, I kept commenting on how New York City, which prides itself, on being like the, uh, you know, the theater capital of the world has no workshop or training specifically for theater critics, right? Even worse for uh, theater, for BIPOC theater critics, right? I really admired and I really loved, there's a program that runs parallel to the New York Film Festival at the Lincoln Center. And they run a program parallel to that, which is designed for new budding critics, right, for film critics. So back in 2013, I was working for this startup called Stage Buddy, and I worked there from 2013 through 2018. And I love sticking my nose in places where I shouldn't. So in addition to the work that I was doing there uh, in terms of marketing and also like writing theater reviews, I was also like, why don't we also launch a film section? And I just want to edit it. And they were like, okay, go for it. So I started working with primarily women of color who, you know, because I I used to get all those, like, pitches for, like, why Inception is the greatest thing since the world started. And I'm like, fuck (laughs) off. (laughs) And... I ended up, you know, because of my sensibilities, I guess, and because of the things that I'm interested in, I ended up like working mostly with young women of color. And there were two years in a row back then where two of the writers that I had been editing and I had been publishing on this tiny website made it into that film um, thing at the Lincoln Center. And I was awesome. like, okay. So I was like, I'm not that bad at this like editing and like mentorship thing. So I try to do that with theater. And I was mostly worried because, you know, I was a member of the American Theater Critics Association for like two years. And I'm still a member of the Drama Desk. I joined in 26, I don't remember, like four years ago or something. And from the second that I got there and I got into those like meetings where like, it's like meet the membership, everyone's white and everyone's mm-hmm. like super old and respect to people and their longevity and all of that. But how can... You know, how can the critics and how can the journalists who are covering an art form that is constantly evolving, that we're told is always moving, that we're told is experimenting with stuff, how can they be people who want faxes and who, for instance, and again, it's not like an ageism thing at all. It's more like their sensibilities, right? Like they don't want to see a revival of My Fair Lady with a black women playing Eliza, for instance, like they want Julie Andrews, like cryogenically frozen (laughs) playing something that she played in
3: 1956.
4: Right. Right. And I get it. And I pray that when I'm old, I'm not going to be, you know, so stuck in my ways, (laughs) but I kept noticing this, like, I'm, how can I be, you know, how can I be the only person who looks like me? How can I be the only person who is not a white person who is a part of this? So, During the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, I guess, as most of us, I was feeling absolutely powerless. You know, I knew that there was nothing that I could do on, like, a large scale. Like, I mean, I could go and protest and I could, like, tell the cops to go fuck themselves and defund that police. Like, that's very important. But there was, I felt like there was nothing really that I could do. And instead of feeling sorry for myself for not being able to do anything, and instead of, like, harassing people who were going through other things and being like, how can I help you? What can I do for you? And I was like, okay, you're home. You've been home for three months already. Uh, just get to work on something. And I had been collecting notes, and I had been working on a syllabus and, like, a program since I started, you know, being a part of this groups. And every time that I try to bring this, you know, when I was a, on the board of the Drama desk, for instance, every time that I would bring this project, like I want to launch a mentorship program for critics of color. I would always be told let's have a meeting about it. And then we would have a meeting and then they would talk about who they sat with at the 1976 award ceremony (laughs) for two hours and then nothing would get done. And again, like, I love all those stories and they're beautiful, but there's a time and a place. And I mean, are you both, are you both American? Because I want to say something that's going to like get me kicked off from, be- okay. <laughs> you know, and I say this with love and respect to someone who uh, came to the U.S. as an adult. You people love meetings. You love it's your terrible. meetings.
2: terrible, yeah.
4: And nothing really gets done in those meetings, right?
2: Especially in theater.
4: <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I was like, you know, I was like, enough meetings. Like, I need to do something. So I went on Twitter. I developed a program that my mom helped me um, come up with, like, a budget. I suck at numbers, like I said, with the baseball thing. And my mom helped me, like, come up with, like, a budget, helped me come up with uh, the way to, like, fine-tune the syllabus that I had created. And I went on Twitter, and I said, I'm doing this. I know that it's super, like, weird and like out there because I'm not being backed up by any organizations I don't have any money to do this but I want to do this so who wants me to mentor them Aww. and then two young women I only, I, I said that obviously like it, this is open exclusively for uh, BIPOC budding critics right and you don't need any preparation like maybe you ran into this street today and you realize hey why not for the first time? And you've never had an interest in this. I don't care. Like, I don't need to see your background. I don't need a background check. I don't need to know where you went to school. I just want you to want to do yeah, this with me.
2: That's so refreshing. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so almost immediately, two two young uh, women DM me and they were like, I'm in. And it took me about a month to get back to them when I had assembled a team of eight complete strangers from Twitter who were like, we want to do this with you. And I had to turn down so many people because I was like, I don't have like the mental and emotional capacity to deal with like, you know, a hundred people at the same time. Right. Um, so then from August through October, 2020, I did a pilot program of what I then called the BIPOC Critics Lab. And my idea was during 10 weeks for me to share. I don't even think of myself as a teacher or an educator. I'm someone who's just sharing their experience. And I wanted this eight people who had no experience whatsoever and writing about the performing arts or podcasting about the performing arts or making videos about the performance arts to know the kinds of things that they would encounter in the quote unquote real world. So more than teaching, training, whatever, I wanted to share my experience. I wanted to pass on my experience. I wanted to tell them the things that you don't even learn in school. Like, I mean, I remember the first time that I was asked to email a publicist, I was like, how the fuck do I email a publicist? Like, <laughs> how do they know who I am? And those kinds of things that do prevent us sometimes from being a part of that, because we don't know, we feel incompetent. We feel like, oh, we're not being let in on this like secret, and it's not a secret in the end. It's just that no one takes the time to explain it to us. So about a month into my pilot, I got a call from the Kennedy Center, and they were like, do you want to do this for us at some point? And I was like, uh, I'm finishing my pilot October, uh, I think it was October 22nd, and I was like, give me two weeks to rest, and I'll get started with you.
3: Wow.
2: So cool. I, and I know you've already written about this, but what are some of the big learnings that you took away from those first uh installments, that first session that you had?
4: I, Although I'm always like in my soapbox against imposter syndrome and all of that, I have severe imposter syndrome. So every time that I'm in one of the sessions, uh, I always feel that I am the person who belongs the least there. Like I feel like I have no place there in terms of what I can teach, in terms of what I can share and all of that. But the thing that I was never expecting was, and this happened really both by coincidence, but also in terms of practical terms, like, you know, like how many workshops have you seen for theater, for instance, for the performing arts that are like, we are meeting at like 9 a.m. on Wednesdays. And we're like, we have jobs. Like, yeah, you know, like we're not like, We're not, like, out in our yachts waiting for something to do on, like, Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) And I was, like, although weekends are precious and they're sacred and we all need our time off, I knew that I needed to find the right time for everyone, all those eight people originally, to be able to meet at the same time. And I told them office hours are obviously out of the question because, like, I have work and you have work and you have school. And I'm not going to make you choose between getting paid or listening to me talk about, like, art, right? So we ended up back then settling on a 4 p.m. on Sundays time slot. And fortunately, I also did another doodle for the Kennedy Center lab, which this time there were 17 uh, future critics. And we did the same thing. And everyone, you know, it's Sundays at 4 p.m., so where I'm going with this was that I wasn't expecting this to become almost like a church and a cool church, like, you know, a church that that you kind of want to go to, that you're not there because your parents forced you or because you feel like you're going to go to hell if you're not there. Um, <laughs> and I wasn't expecting that. I was very moved. You know, I'm very strange in that, like, my only rule in the lab is that there are no rules. Like, I always tell them, like, if you need to skip a session, I don't need to know why. Like, you don't need to tell me. You don't, I don't need to know why. Like, if it's like, I mean, as someone who missed school once because I had a pimple and it was huge, I don't, if you have a pimple and you don't want us to see, I don't need to know. Like, I trust that you know why you're choosing not to be here, right? But there's no retaliation for that. There's class notes, there's You know, I always gave them the, the option to like schedule one-on-ones with me if they needed one. And our sessions are also recorded and they're kept private for the cohort. So if you miss it, you don't miss it. Like you can catch up. But one of the things that I wasn't expecting that I really found very moving was this one time I remember, uh, we were like in the middle of like one of our sessions and one of the members, uh, was in a chat going, I'm sorry I can't be there because uh and I saw I can't be there and I was already like, no rules like why are you telling us that you're you know like <laughs> no like no, I don't want to be a burden on you and I, as I was about to like go like don't explain like just like turn this zoom off they said uh they were on they were on their way to uh, a family funeral, and they said that although they couldn't be present for the session itself, that just being there and listening to us talk gave them comfort and made them feel good. Wow. And I was not expecting that at all. Uh, People wanting to be there was something that I was not expecting.
3: Wow. That's really powerful. uh, As I was reading about the lab, there were so many things um, I heard you mention that were seem so radical in the, especially in the theater industry. Uh, and one of them was how the, the lab reminds folks this is the quote that the work of a critic is not to pass judgment and make recommendations, but rather to be the mediator between the art and the audience. Critics exist to open up dialogue, not to end it. So how has this purpose, um, do you feel like has been manipulated in current criticism and how we think of it and how are you seeing critics center this thinking more?
4: Basically, I'm not seeing them like do this more. And I have a very simple. I have a very simple. Um, I have a very simple kind of like formula for this. Think about a critic, right? Think about a theater critic, especially, and think about their presence in social media. Is their social media being used exclusively for them to dump links to their pieces, and then move on, and be inactive until the time comes for them to dump another link or? Are there the AOC style talking to the people who want to engage with them? Are they answering to comments? Are they answering questions? Are they starting conversations outside the piece that they, you know, that they published? Are they engaging with readers in the comments? Although the comment section can be messy and all that, and so can social media. But do these people go outside of their Ivory towers to actually engage with the people, not only engage with the famous artists that they want to, you know, look good for, uh, or the people that they wrote about. But are they answering to the college student who's in like Arkansas? Are they talking to the high schooler who's in Brooklyn? Are they talking to someone who's not their own circle? The answer is usually no. They usually just talk to each other. They ignore or block or mute anyone who is not part of the circle. So if you're if you're a critic and your audience on social media and the audience that you are willing to have a conversation with is other critics, you are just perpetuating the reasons why this white supremacist structure that is arts criticism is almost impossible to shake and to move. Because you are helping it stay, you know, you're just helping it feed itself and not go anywhere.
2: And speaking of that, our our next question is right, right along those lines of just insulating yourself and not taking any accountability or being vulnerable at all. Um, so another focus of the lab seems to be moving away from the white supremacy of academia. And how have the future critics you've been working with, how have they started kind of thinking outside of that that box of what's possible?
4: I was very disturbed. When one of the uh, cohort members at the Kennedy Center said to me that they were doing my assignments. And, you know, I I leave an assignment every week, but I tell them every week, do it if you want, do it if you have time, do it when you want, do it when you have time. But also, like, I will give you my feedback when I have time and I'll give you my feedback. You know, it's going to happen. Like, if you send me something, I will acknowledge it. And I will give you my feedback, but don't do it because you have to. Don't do it because there's a deadline. And one of the members of the Kennedy Center was like, "Yeah, I'm doing like all the assignments that you left because they're more fun than doing schoolwork." And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, "No, I'm like, you're not, you're not getting graded for this. You know what I mean?" I found that really moving. Also, like, it's I found it so. I find academia so. I I. I I'm just going to say it. I think a lot of people in academia hate young people and hate the idea of having competitors once they graduate. And that the only reason why they're saying academia is to make people feel like they can't accomplish their dreams. And I'm saying this because when I, you know, I, I was born in Honduras and I stayed there until I was uh, 18 years old and I started college when I was 16, not because I wasn't like Doobie house or kind of like genius, but because I was just, anyway, it's a long story. But I started college when I was 16. I was a semester away from graduating when I was 18. I was doing a student communications major in a school in Honduras. And I went to this class and it was a business class because they made us take all this like stupid business classes. And I was in this classroom and this guy who was our professor, Turned to us to his students, you know, like a bunch of like 18, 19 year olds and like people in their early twenties. And he turned to us and he looked at us and he said, I want each of you in this room to know that you are never going to accomplish to anything. You are never going to be anything. Like your parents are paying for school and that's oh my God. that's wow. because you're all like stupid. And you're never gonna be anything. So just give up and just like Come to class and like just keep living your lives. I looked around oh, my, uh, I looked around the classroom, and no one reacted. And in that moment, I took my shit. I put it in my bag. I got up and I told him, "We'll see about that." And I never went back to that school. Wow. And my parents wanted to murder me because they're like, <laughs> "You have only six months left. Just please get a diploma." And I was like. No, like my dignity, my morals, I'm not going to go back to that school where this man told us that. like People like that should not be in academia of any kind. And I've encountered uh, young people here who are in school who are like Ivy Leaguers and who are in this like school set, you know, like they're like ridiculously expensive when their professors tell them you shouldn't be doing this. You should Try to become something else instead. That is not fair. That is not cool. Those people don't, shouldn't be allowed to be around other people, much less young people who are impressionable and whose dreams they can crush just because they're being assholes.
3: That's heartbreaking.
2: It's just...
3: And probably going into thousands of dollars of debt for, to learn from them. Like, shame on them. Yeah, they have no place there. That's nuts.
2: Very brave to do what you did though. I don't, I think yeah. fearing my parents and the tuition retaliation. I don't know if I would have been as brave as you.
4: <laughs> I don't know if it was brave. I was just like, I don't, I don't know. I'm just, thank you. Uh, but I don't, I, I just, I don't know. I'm very, um, I'm very stubborn. And what I did was when they were like, well, we've been paying for this. So what I did was the next week I had a job and I'm like, yeah, "No, I, you, you can't complain. I have a job now.
3: Yeah. Speaking of white supremacy, um, we've seen in the white American theater uh, movement that's taken to task commercial theater and nonprofit institutions, and what responsibility do outlets have when choosing critics in terms of uh, the demands that we've seen?
4: That's a loaded question, so let me have another sip of my bourbon for that. <laughs> um, you know, something that I've realized is that um, and I don't want to use... You know, I'm a huge, 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 huge fan of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I don't want to, you know, it's hard for me to, like, mention her right now, especially after, you know, we as society made her share her trauma with us just because a bunch of people in Congress won't believe her. So this is why I'm kind of like, I feel like a shady human being, like, talking about her. Today, uh, because this happened, you know, last night, her Instagram live. But the reason why I'm mentioning her, you know, I, she's extremely courageous and she's extremely brave because she's doing this work in government where it's like all other sorts of fucked up. But the reason why I'm mentioning her is because she taught me through her example that a lot of the times this structures simply don't care. They're not, you know, are they responsible? Sure. Should they be doing this? Sure. But they don't care. They don't give a damn. While she, for instance, you know, while we had like Nancy Pelosi fighting Republicans and we had horrible like Mitch McConnell doing monstrous things and supporting this man that was in the White House, up until like three weeks ago, while they were fighting and going about it on CNN and doing this like histronics and this like really mediocre political theater, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was in her district and she was feeding people. She was going door to door, feeding people and she does that. And sure, this structures should care and they are responsible because they are guilty for us not having the opportunities that uh, that especially straight white men have, right? But I realized in my work as a critic that to want to change them is almost like the game that they want to play. Like they want this suffering porn. That's what they want. They want me To be out there complaining, why am I not the the chief critic for this paper or this magazine? Or why isn't, like, I don't know, this organization hiring me? They want that, and I'm not willing to give them that. And what I've done instead is that I've shown them that, sure, financially, their support would be invaluable because they have money, right? That's the only thing of theirs that I need. But I don't need their permission to write. I don't need their permission to mentor anyone. I don't need their permission to exist. And I will remind them of this constantly. Someone not too long ago was talking to me about wanting to invest in training for all these outlets. So these outlets had like sensitivity training and like anti-racist workshops. And this person asked me, do you think there's, any worth in trying to reform these structures, or should we burn them down and start from zero? And I told them, I have my matches ready.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, I was gonna say it feels like like abolition versus reform, and yeah.
4: I'm very soapboxy today. I'm sorry.
3: <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's I great. Love it. <laughs> yeah, I just
2: i I feel like we've all been inundated too the past year with like the. Look how I changed stories, you know, and it's, uh I don't know, thinking of a major outlet or, I don't know, using that, using the suffering porn, as you say, to like, just try to increase their reputation is just continuing that cycle that you mentioned before.
4: Of like, and it's always like minimal. I mean, I don't care about the Tonys because I'm never going to get nominated for a Tony because I'm not a theater maker. So whatever, fuck the Tonys. Uh <laughs> But I use the Tonys as a perfect example of this in theater, for instance. Like, remember 2016, the last year all of us had hope for a little bit? And it was 2016 and Hamilton swept all the awards and Lynn Manuel Miranda, who I respect and admire a lot, was like, love is love and we're all happy and love is going to conquer everything. For the first time in history, four, uh, BIPOC performers won all the Tonys for performing, for performance in a musical. Right. Next year, back to four white winners, back to shows about white people winning everything. And it's been the same since. And it's like, we are comfortable just checking the box. Hamilton won, we fixed racism. And that's not true. And that's what I want to remind them of constantly.
2: Totally. Yeah. So as we were just talking about, critics and artists are sometimes thought of at odds. And how are you working to kind of queer that relationship as well?
4: It's also one of the things where I've been told that I'm nuts by my colleagues. Uh and because I have named it, I have in my personal opinion and in my experience telling me that to engage with an artist is conflict of interest is white supremacy. It is you know it's a rule that's forbidding me from talking to the people who are creating the work that I am addressing, right? So for so long, theater critics specifically, and I think critics and almost, you know, every uh, art field, every branch of the arts, we have removed ourselves from being around the artists because we think, I don't know what we think. Like, we don't have to be enemies. Like, one of the things that I always tell uh, young people, especially kids, is that, and I go into like my big bird, Mode, and I don't curse around it, by the way. I go into my big work mode and I tell them, I'm going to tell you a secret. The C in critic is actually a C for cheerleader because that's what we are. We are in this because we love it. We're not in this because we want to criticize it. We're not in this because we want to tear it down. We are in this because we love this so much that all we want to do is talk about it and tell other people how much we love it. So if we love something... How are we not able, how are, how are we being told that we cannot talk about this love or this sometimes dislike or this is not for me or, you know, just like flat out fan boy or fan girl or fan whatever around an artist because we love their work. Like this is literally what we're being paid to do, right? So how can we pretend that we are this like abstract, you know, like, amorphous like beings just, like floating around who only show up to review their shows or to talk to them for a feature. That's not cool. Like where do we go the rest of the time? It's almost like very metaphysical. It's like, are we ghosts? It's, like, are we like in critic limbo? Are we in like purgatory? <laughs> like where are we the rest of the time? So I don't believe in this. The problem with this is that it often uh, people love binaries, right? And they're like, okay, so that means that if you're not, not, you know, if you're not, not their friend, that means that you're BFFs. And I'm like, no, I'm never going to go to like their quinceañeras. Like I'm never going to go to like their kids, like birthday parties. Um, but that doesn't mean that our relationship has to be one of antagonism. It's the opposite. Like we are part of the ecosystem of art. So we need to know what's going on. Like, I advocate constantly for critics, even if they're not writing a piece about it. Like, obviously, this goes more for the critics who can afford to do this all the time, right? Uh, If you're, like, juggling, like, a million, like, jobs and all that, like, don't listen to me right now. But if you can afford to, for instance, take your Friday off and not go to the Met and not go to brunch and instead ask a theater maker, would it be okay if I attended one of your rehearsals? not because I want to write about it, not because I want to be nosy, because I want to see what's happening. I want to see what you're doing. I want to see what it's like to make this thing that I love, not because I need to, not because I'm on assignment, but because I love it so much. So I would love it. If I had the time and I had the money to like, you know, not have to work all the time, I would be like in people's like Zooms all the time, like looking at what they're doing and also building a relationship of trust because this leads, you know, if we start treating, uh, well, I'm going to exclude myself right now because I'm going to be like very, uh, I don't know, like, I'll use my vanity right now and exclude myself because I'm not like that. But if we were a part of this process, if we wanted to know more about artists, then we wouldn't talk shit about them when we review their work. We would think of them as human beings. We would not be okay with writing or saying stuff that can get their shows closed. Or we would not be okay with talking about their sexual orientation, their, uh, their, uh, their looks, you know, the way they move, the way they sound. We would not be okay with treating them like less than human beings if we were actively part of the process of art making, which by default is completely human. And one of the reasons why I'm proud, one of the few reasons why I'm proud to be a human being. So I feel that if we were a part of this more often and constantly, we would not be seeing the kinds of criticism that often turn the spotlight on critics, right? Like when a critic says something horrible about a person's like, uh, sexual identity, for instance, or their gender identity, or when a male critic comments on the way a female actor looks, for instance, we would not be dealing with that if we were a constant part of the process of art making.
2: Yeah. And if the artists were thinking of you guys as more, more as people as well, hopefully that would eliminate a lot of changes to the art that happens just to appease like what they think. I'm always, I always think about how sad it is the changes that have happened to things in anticipation of reviews. Right. And I think so on that side of it too, it would help a lot if, it's a more human relationship between you as well.
4: Yeah. Like the last thing that I want an artist is to be afraid of me. Um, cause I love them. Like I love their work. And you know, whenever I go see something, for instance, that I don't like, first of all, like I always acknowledge that criticism is an opinion. That's all it is. Uh, we get paid for opinion. Sometimes that's the only difference between us and the rest of people. Um, but every time that I don't like the work of an artist, for instance, first of all, I acknowledge that it's my personal taste. It has nothing to do with the artist. It's just, it's just not for me. That's sports. But also the next time they put out work, I go in wanting to love it so much because I didn't maybe like their previous work that much. So it's the same. Like whenever, you know, every time that I go see a show or every time that I experience a piece of art for the first time, I want to love it with every fiber my being it's not always the case but it has nothing to do with the artist like in any way it's all about us
3: i think that can totally change how audiences come into st- seeing shows too if they're they're also coming in with this like generous spirit of wanting to love everything um, and that could start with how people write about work yeah and because we're a queer focused podcast um, how or are you seeing queerness intersect with the work of the lab at all
4: it's, uh, you know, this happened almost by default. Like I, I'm always like, when I see the, the people gathered and when I saw the people gathered in the room at the Kennedy center and I started learning about them, I was like, fuck, it looks like I planned this. Uh, cause it was significant, you know, a significant amount of, like, I think we had like 60% women and I'm like, holy fuck, that's like incredible. And a large percentage of our uh, cohort at the Kennedy Center were queer young men and women. So I don't know how this happens. I know that there's this like really shitty joke about every theater critic, uh, every male theater critic being a gay man, which I have to say it's like maybe like a little bit founded on like reality because <laughs> I don't think I know, I know a couple like straight guys who review theater but it's like, you know, the art by, de- the arts by default, because they speak to, they speak in code sometimes, and they speak to a sensibility that's sometimes going against the uh, heteronormative world that we live in. By default, the arts attract queer people. Because we feel that we're being heard, we're being seen, and we are allowed to be who we are in the presence of an artwork that speaks to us. I mean, I'm wearing a freaking Madonna.
2: <laughs> love yeah, love,
4: yeah. <laughs> and it's I, I don't know I don't know if I have like a, a great answer for this, but I'm just happy I guess seeing that now the difference with the lab at least is that I get to meet um, bipoc queer uh, youths I guess and people have all ages. that makes me very happy. It's not only a bunch of uh, gay white men anymore in my circle. That's what
2: we definitely need. Yeah, much more of that. (laughs) Um, But we wanted to jump over to Token Theater Friends. So as creator and host of Token Theater Friends podcast, can you tell us a bit about your podcast? And also, what does token mean to you?
4: Token was a word that we wanted to appropriate just so it doesn't hurt us anymore. So I hate being a token. I mean, who doesn't, right? But it was that same, you know, I was very inspired, for instance, by Luis Alfaro, who's one of my favorite playwrights and artists all over, uh, who uh, did a play called Mojada. And Mojada in Spanish means wetback, basically. And he named his play Mojada. It's an adaptation of Medea, So there's this, like, amazing, like, wordplay over there and all that. But he wanted to appropriate that word so it wouldn't hurt undocumented immigrants anymore. Obviously, there was a large percentage of people who were like, how dare you use this word that's being used as a derogative derogative term against us and all that, and sure, they're absolutely right. But I love that once we show people that a word won't stop us from doing our work and that a word can't hurt us. I mean, Madonna and a song goes also like sticks and bones. Sorry, sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words will never hurt me. So that's tokenism for me. I mean, I know I'm a token. Sometimes I actively try to not let that get to me, but I also want people who feel tokenized at times to take that and twist it and turn it into something that they can use for their own benefit. Almost not necessarily like being like an like a double agent or like, a mole or anything like that. But hey, if you're going to tokenize me, I'm going to squeeze the hell out of my token benefits, right? Like if you mess with me, you're going to know that you're messing with me. So the main idea of the show was that I wanted, you know, I I really am not like a social person. I'm not someone who likes being um, in the spotlight, my friends in college used to call me wildflower. because so I would literally always be like against the wall, just like smoking my Marlboro lights and drinking. <laughs> I'm not good around people. Like I'm really not good around people and I love people. Um, but I, I'm just very shy by nature. Like I have also like severe like social anxiety. So I'm just like someone who prefers not to be in the spotlight. But if you think about, you know, this is not fair if you're both like theater people, I guess, but let's pretend that you are not theater people, or let's talk about another field altogether. Do you know, for instance, like, I mean, Holly, you have a lot of books. What, like, what's an, what's an art form that you're like, absolutely like, you don't know anything about?
3: Uh, we'll say opera.
4: Okay, how about you, Megan?
3: I
2: was about to say opera too.
3: Um,
4: <laughs> I'll go with opera also. Okay. Cause, yeah. So, do we know? We know that there's opera critics, right? But do we know what they look like?
3: I can guess. (laughs) Yeah.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Right. The guess part is, like, very accurate. So, for me, when I identified, like, most people, even people who love theater, you know, people who go to the theater, like, every week or every month or whatever, they don't know what critics look like. They can guess, but I mean, they could be sitting next to like someone who's been writing and destroying shows for decades for a newspaper. And they, they're they not going to know they're sitting next to them because those people also are not big on being uh, in public. They're not big on like even showing. They're kind of like, the, remember, like the eggs on Twitter, like the trolls, basically, who hide <laughs> their faces and then talk shit about people. So for me, most white critics are kind of like that. They're going to have like avatars. They're going to have not their faces. Like they don't like people seeing their faces. Uh, and I thought that was wrong. And I wanted, although, you know, I may not have like the ideal face for whatever, you know, like I, I would seriously like get some Botox and like, anyway, that's a whole other story. But <laughs> I wanted young people, especially I wanted kids to not think about like an being a white man, when they're talking about criticism, but I wanted them to see people that looked like them talking about the art form that they love or the art form that they want to be a part of when they grow up, and I wanted them to see people like me talking to artists that they love. I didn't want them to think that this was a field that was only uh, exclusively, you know, made for white men. So that's the entire premise of the show. Like, which is why the video component is a huge part for me. Not, again, not because I have like the greatest, like being in front of a camera skills, or I'm definitely no Brad Pitt in terms of comfort around the camera. And I'm definitely no Jennifer Lopez, which I, you know, I pray every night, like, please God, give me at least like 10% of JLo's charm in front of a camera, <laughs> please. Um But I want them to see us. And it was very moving for me. I remember... This one time that I went to see Head Over Heels, which is also like a, a queer show that I loved so much. And if we had more queer uh, critics of color writing, I think the show would still be open.
0: Yeah. But anyway,
4: that's a whole other story. But this one time I went to, uh, to Head Over Heels and I was asking uh, one of the ushers how to find a water fountain. So I refused to pay $20 for water. Uh, and I was like, tell me where to find it. And as I was waiting to ask the usher that who was very friendly and lovely, this young man tapped uh, me on the shoulder. And I usually assume that when people want to talk to me out in the world, like strangers, it's either because I'm stepping on like their bag or because they want to ask me about where I got the T-shirt I'm wearing. That's usually the case. Like People want to know where I get my T-shirts. So I turned and I was like ready with like, oh, I got here, here, here or sorry that I'm stepping on your back. And instead they went, I just wanted to let you know that I love watching your show and that you inspire people like me every day. And I never expect stuff like that. So I blush and I just like hide. And I'm like, please just ask me where I got my T-shirt. That would make this much more comfortable. Uh, But that's what I wanted. Not necessarily for me, as there's no one else is doing it, I was like, might as well be me. Uh, I'm very excited right now because I, um, I'm i working on my very first episode that I'm completely producing. I'm not involved in it at all other than producing. And if things go well, and if I'm able to get more funding uh, very soon, I'm only just going to be producing the show. And it's going to be an entire roster of BIPOC, critics, and journalists talking to artists and talking to each other, both the web series and the podcast. And I'm just going to be home trying to get rid of this like lines.
0: <laughs> oh, that
2: sounds
3: amazing. We're so excited for that. That'll be great. <laughs> okay. So we have a section called Queering the Canon, where we look at existing theater and how we can queer it. So we know that you're a huge Kelly O'Hara fan, as are we. Do you have a show or a role that Kelly's done that you would like to see queered?
4: Well, actually, I love this question so much because you made me think a lot about Kelly, which is like, I already do <laughs> that a lot. Uh, and first of all, like I need her to play Billy Flynn in Chicago, like she did at that. It's cast, remember? Oh she did. Yeah. But then I was thinking, you know, like Kelly O'Hara gets a lot of flack because she has this like really gorgeous voice and she's like divine on stage. But she gets a lot of flack because she's very safe in terms of what she does, right, with her characters and the roles that she takes on. But I was thinking about just like the shows that she's done recently, uh, like Kiss Me Kate, and let's not go into like the whole Shakespeare thing of the show, like stuff like this, pretend, you know, that's a whole other podcast. Um, but in that show, she's playing a, a female actor who gets to tell her male lead what she's willing to put up with and what she's not willing to put up with, and she even kicks him in the nuts, which go Kelly. And then I went back and to uh, The King and I, which, again, colonialism, imperialism, and all those themes, let's pretend. We know that, and we know it's fucked up and all that. But there she's also, a single mom, a widow, who travels across the world on her own and teaches her son how not to be a dick, right? <laughs> and also censor, you know, like... She goes like, uh, like fist to fist, basically with the King of Slam, who's the man of color and all those things and all that, whatever. But she, I realized that she has kind of been subtly playing all this uh, female characters that through very feminine, um, you know, approaches challenge the system of misogyny and sexism even going back to the Bridges of Madison County, which is my absolute performance of hers. She takes on a lover. She fucks Stephen Pasquale on stage. She was like, go Kelly. She <laughs> sings about it. And then she's like, but you know what, Stephen? I think I'm going to stay with my family. So bye. <laughs> and then he's the one moping about not having her uh, in his life. So I would say my ideal queer, the canon Work would be seeing Stephen and Kelly switch roles in the Bridges of Madison County, oh, and have Kelly pine over not having Stephen and his abs in her life.
3: That's so funny we talked about this before we, we got to this interview and we asked each other the same question. And, and Megan, do you want to go first?
2: Well, I also picked Bridges because I love her <laughs> that show so much. But I just wanted to, even though I love Stephen Pesquale, I, like he's great. I want, I'm like, what if we just swap him out for like more of a lady type or like non binary type and kind of queer it that way? I feel like that would be fun. But mm-hmm. yeah, Holly had a great answer too.
3: Yeah, you hit my other one, which was also The King and I of problematic fave. And I just want to see Anna and Lady Tiang run away together. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I feel like that could happen. That We could make a version of that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Amazing. I know. I can't wait to see what, what – do we know what she's going to do next after pandemic times?
4: Oh, yes, we do. We do? She's- Queering it up because she's big. Be, she's gonna do the Hours opera, and she's gonna be playing Laura Brown, the Julianne Moore character. At the
3: oh Met. yes, it's all coming true. Yeah.
2: <laughs> we wished into reality. Oh my gosh, I did not know that. I'm thrilled by that. That's incredible. <laughs> That'll be great, Jose. We also wanted to ask outside of theater, which you cover many realms, so this shouldn't be too hard. What What's another queer culture indulgence that you've been enjoying?
4: Kylie Minogue nonstop. I have disco lights now in my living room and it's 24 seven Kylie central in my apartment with apologies to Madonna. I love this hoodie, but I haven't listened to her in a while. It's <laughs> Kylie old time since Kylie dropped her disco album. Good luck. Anyone else getting any, you know, like airtime in my ears and in my home. And also I am renewing my vows with RuPaul's Drat Race Oh, um, <laughs> Yeah, which we kind of hit like a bumpy, like rocky road back there, but I'm kind of like, yeah, sure, Rue, I'll, I'll give you another chance.
3: And then, uh, for our queer give section, you wanted to shout out the Latino e- Equality Alliance. Uh, is there anything you want to share about them or why you like them? I, uh,
4: they're based, they're basically based in California. And I actually also wanted to like talk about Raices because I feel like, you know, I was trying to find like a specifically queer, uh, you know that had queer the title somewhere but i also love races because i feel like when we talk about like things like you know the latino uh, equality alliance for instance hasn't come with an organization like races is that we sometimes forget for instance that when republicans for caging children some of those are queer children you know they're gonna grow up and they're already queer and i feel like we don't talk about that enough so I'm going to, like, do, like, a mashup of, like, Latino Equality Alliance, which is actively helping immigrants and Latinos and the Latinx community in the United States, uh who already identify as queer, but also RAICES, because they're kind of, like, doing the pre, I don't know, pre-part of that, which is, like, helping uh immigrants, like, Latino immigrants specifically, have decent human lives and be treated like humans in America.
3: That would be great. Yeah. I mean, yeah, queerness is intersectional to so many causes right because there are queer people everywhere we'll definitely shout them out
2: that's great thank you so much this has been such a cool conversation we were both so excited to just talk to you about criticism because it's i feel like it's something we encounter constantly as theater fans and theater professionals but i can't i don't think this is goes to your problem i don't think i've ever had a conversation with a critic before
4: (laughs) exactly (laughs) and that's not cool like i mean that's I always say that, you know, I wanted to be a critic because when I was little, I used to devour these short bounds, reviews on entertainment weekly. And instead of having normal imaginary friends like a kid, you know, like a robot or a unicorn, my imaginary friends were critics. And I wanted to talk to them about the art that I loved. And there's probably kids like that out there. And I don't want them to have to think of us as imaginary beings anymore. We're real and we're queer and we're... Definitely here forever.
3: Amazing. And how can they find you online?
4: Uh, you can go to Twitter, and I'm at Jose Solis Mayen, and I link to all my work there and expect a lot of JLo and Kylie content also. Awesome.
3: That's what the people need. <laughs> this was amazing. Thank you so much, Jose.
4: Thank you both so much. This was a pleasure, and I hope, I mean, if you do repeat guests, I'll be happy to come back at some point.
3: Yay. Thanks, Jose.
4: Thank you,
3: both. Thanks for listening. If you like, please follow, rate, and review us and share us
2: with your friends. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at ThesisOnJoan.
3: We love to hear your queer culture backs and ideas for clearing the canon. Send us an email at thesisonjoan at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 845-445-9251.
2: Come back for more interviews, fun queer content, recommendations, and discussions on current theater.
3: Until next time, keep it queer. Not that
2: it'd be that hard for y'all to do. (laughs) Totally. And, um, oh my God, Grace is sending me pictures from Dick's Sporting Goods. (laughs) It's a picture of a chair and says, do we need this? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anyway.